wanted to continue our um, Lent series. Beth asked me to um, preach on prayer, and she specifically gave me the Lord's Prayer. Here we go. So a couple of weeks ago, Melinda Graham and I went on a Sankofa pilgrimage. Um, it, this pilgrimage was sponsored by the Evangelical Covenant Church. And Sankofa is a principle derived from the Akan people of Ghana. And it basically says that we should remember the past to make positive progress in the future. So our pilgrimage was a four-day bus ride. Uh, it, it was supposed to mimic the freedom rides of the 1960s. And so we started in Atlanta and um, end up in Memphis and then double back, right? I'm not going to give you a lot of details about that because Melinda and I hope to share those details at a later date together. We experienced it together, and I want to share the details of that with her. But I will say that I was greatly impacted um, by the overarching theme of injustice and how it was traced in the history of the United States. It impacted me greatly, but I was also intrigued by the role that faith played in trying to right those injustices. So I mentioned to Melinda, this, this experience was very um, emotional for me, and, and I'm not necessarily an emotional person. Y'all know I'm a loud person, but I'm not like an emotional person. I, I'm not emotive. Um, and I said to, to Melinda, I said, I'm really full. I'm preaching in a couple of weeks. I'm preaching on the Lord's Prayer. I can't get up there and act like I didn't have this experience. <laughs> and Melinda being Melinda, asked me a question. She said, can the Lord's Prayer be viewed through a justice lens? I immediately knew that I had to find out. So, I am asking you all for some grace here. I hope to share what is on my heart and I recognize that this is a different and a new way of engaging this text, of engaging the Lord's Prayer. I respect that. And I hope that you will listen with receptive minds and open hearts. Let us pray. Father God, we come asking for your blessings over us this morning. I thank you for the amazing worship, ushering us into your presence, and now I just welcome you. Have your way this morning, Lord. Speak through me, speak to me. I pray that your word would go out and accomplish what you want it to accomplish. We welcome you this morning, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin with the context of the Lord's Prayer. As recorded by Matthew, the Lord's Prayer falls in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. 
the sermon is for, this Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus' disciples. And the chap, in chapter 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the spiritual practices and values that ultimately um, identify them as followers of Jesus. In Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus is concerned with the disciples' faith. And he contrasts the children of God with the hypocrites and Gentiles. The overarching command is found in Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He gives us three commands. When you give to the poor... Don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Rather, give to the poor in secret. Chris did a masterful job last week of unpacking this. When you pray, don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Rather, pray to your Father in secret. And when you fast, don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Rather, fast in secret. In each of these situations, Jesus admonishes us that the hypocrites will gain the reward that they seek when they do all of these things in, in public. They, they get the honor and the praise from people, which is what they actually want. But those who, who do these practices in secret without, without any concern for acknowledgement will be rewarded by God. The Lord's Prayer falls in the middle of this instruction. It was not meant to be and is not a prayer that is prayed to attract attention. It's supposed to be a private prayer between the disciple and God. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So my question is, what if we were to enter into our private closets and prayed for justice using the Lord's Prayer as our framework. I believe by using the Lord's Prayer as a model to pray for justice, we might discover or be reminded of the true nature of our Father's character, his kingdom, his provision, his forgiveness, and his direction and protection. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to our Father. He doesn't teach them to pray to your Father. He intentionally uses the word our. Our means something or someone who belongs and is accessible or is identified by a collective group of individuals. To put it simply, God is accessible to all of us, 
and we to God. Picture a parent with many children, many more than any of us will ever have, many children. That's who God is. And according to current estimates, he has a total of about 8 billion children. Why is this important? If we can understand that God isn't just about us, just for us, individually us, me, you, but is caring for a billion or eight billion other people across the globe, we will begin to do life differently. Suddenly we stop seeing in terms of me and start seeing in terms of we. This alone will transform our behavior and how we treat each other. This will also help us understand that we are all brothers and sisters. And like brothers and sisters, we got to treat each other right. And we also have to stop hoarding the resources that God has given. When we think in terms of we, it's easier to see that our Father is just. The concept of justice in the Bible covers more than correcting wrongdoing. It includes treating all people, not only with fairness, but also with protection and care. Our Father calls all people to seek justice for those most vulnerable to suffering injustice. The Bible regularly pairs justice with acting righteously and behaving with mercy, love, kindness, and compassion. Justice is rooted in our Father's character and creation. He is the rock. His works are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The maker of heaven and earth upholds the cause of the oppressed and loves the righteous. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to love tenderly those who are socially powerless. In most discussions of God's character, we are often told that God is just, I'm sorry, that God is love, but he is also just. That saying is not found in the Bible anywhere. Yes, it says that God is love, and yes, it says that God is just, but when we put the word but in there, we make those two in opposition to each other, right? We say that God loves you, but if you do something wrong, he's coming for you. And, and that's not the God that we serve. God is both loving and just. A friend 
gave me this, and I had to include it in my sermon with his permission. There is no justice without love. Love, then, together with mercy and grace and peace, enable justice. This is who God is. Our Father cannot and will not let injustice triumph. We are all created in the image of God. And Jesus deeply resents the idea that any one group of people or any one group of his children would think themselves better or greater than any other people. He is our father and he is for all of us. Jesus displays this truth poignantly and powerfully in Mark 10, 13 through 16, when he welcomes the children who during his time were considered a marginalized group. They had no rights. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter in. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. The fact that the disciples, you know, the ones who spent more time with Jesus than anybody else, tried to play gatekeepers and tried to decide who had access to Jesus and who didn't, the Bible says Jesus was indignant. As children of God, the question then becomes, how will we treat God's other children? Will we treat them as if they don't belong to God and don't belong to the human race? Or will we welcome them in? providing them with food for the hungry, shelter for the homeless, and refuge for those who are fleeing for their lives. He is our Father, and each and every one of us are God's children. And he loves each and every one of us equally, all eight billion. And church, I want you to hear me say when I say we're all God's children, I don't just mean those of us who have bent the knee. We are all God's children. He loves all of us, whether we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior or not. And that is really important that we, the church, understand that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not an appeal for us to wait for God to reveal himself. God is waiting for us to open our eyes and recognize his kingdom breaking through. It's breaking through all around us. When pain and suffering are countered, the kingdom breaks through.
when violence and abuse of wealth, power, and prestige are opposed, the kingdom flourishes. When people reach out to those in need, those who are oppressed, and those who feel that they have no hope, then God's will is being done. The revolutionary call, the revolutionary call of the kingdom is to bring God's light to the most hopeless and desolate situations. That's what we're called to. God chooses to use us, inept humans, to carry out his will. I'm baffled, but here we go. He chooses to use people just like me with all of my flaws to actively pursue and usher in his kingdom. He invites us to play a role in the kingdom, not a role where we dominate and rule over others, and not a role where we insist that everyone believe what we believe. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So to whom does the kingdom belong? Our father. He is the one who opens the door, invites outsiders, invites outsiders in and gives us the power to live kingdom lifestyles. Our world today looks very vastly different than God's kingdom. We deal with all kinds of injustices as we are engaging to, to, to bring change to these areas. We are called to engage as citizens of the kingdom. We're not supposed to do this the way the world does it. We are called to exercise the same justice that our father exercises. The way that we exercise justice is as important as the desired outcome. And it is measured by righteousness, peace, and joy that should result from our methods. As theologian N.T. Wright suggests in his book, Surprised by Hope, God is asking us to begin to imagine what the kingdom might look like and to celebrate that redemption, that healing, and that transformation in the present 
and anticipate God's final intention. That's powerful. War, famine, genocide, rape, human trafficking, racism, acts of rage, destruction, sickness, and death, and probably many more things could be added to this list, exist in every society around the world. As humans, we have never experienced life without these realities. We don't know what it is to live in peace, to live free of pain, to live without the fear of someone doing harm simply because of the color of our skin or who we associate with or who we vote for. But imagine living in a world where none of these things exist. I love the picture that Lisa Sharon Harper paints of heaven, of God's kingdom in her book, The Very Good Gospel. Shalom is what the kingdom of God smells like. It's what the kingdom looks like and what Jesus requires of the kingdom citizens. It's when everyone has enough. It's when families are healed. It's when shame is renounced and inner freedom is laid hold of. It's when human dignity bestowed by the image of God in all humanity is cultivated, protected, and served in families, faith communities, and schools, and through public policy. Shalom is when the capacity to lead is recognized in every human being and when nations join together to protect the environment. This is God's reality. This is what he is bringing the world into. And this is what his kingdom will look like. This is what we are praying for and inviting others to be a part of. This is what we actually want when we pray God's kingdom come and his will be done. I think we say it so often, we don't remember what we are praying for. And it's one of the best prayers we will ever pray. Give us today our daily bread. So now the focus of the Lord's prayer shifts from God to our own basic needs. God knows we have them. And not simply to my needs, but to our needs. It's the collective again. Jesus is intentional in telling us to ask for our daily bread. He could have told us to pray that we had everything we needed in one, one fell swoop, but he did not. Instead, he teaches us to ask for what we need each day and to reject our tendency to hoard and to consume to amass wealth and resources at the expense of others. He's also teaching us to be just as concerned that our neighbor has their daily bread as we are that we have ours. 
Now, I want to be clear. Lisa is not suggesting that Jesus is saying that we should all be poor, that we shouldn't have nice things, that we shouldn't have fat bank accounts. What I am saying is that we should have none of those things at the expense of other people. As we begin to pray and ask God simply for our daily bread, we're able to release everything that we have to him. We open our, our hands and we do as Chris told us last week, we give, we give. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This convicts me. I have a habit of overbuying. Yep, yep, yep. If you come in my house, there's a whole lot of toilet paper and paper towels. It's a lot of soap and detergent. And of course, coffee. <laughs> and I know that I do this because I remember as an adult not having enough. I remember it. And if I'm being honest, I fear not having enough toilet paper. And I just want y'all to know, when there was a toilet paper shortage, <laughs> guess who had toilet paper? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but I digress. My fear of not having enough is actually an inability to trust God to provide. I wish I could tell you I was not going to buy some more toilet paper, but I can't. But I am working on, um, Jan Tackle says, my truster is broken, right, in that area. And, and, and I am working on it. God tried to teach the Israelites that he could and would provide for them when they first escaped um, uh, Egypt. When they were enslaved, they had plenty of everything. They had plenty of, of food, vegetables, meat, fish, you name it, they could eat it, bread, but now that they're in the wilderness, those things are all gone. And it's replaced by something called manna. The Israelites were instructed to take only what they needed each day for their families, for themselves and their family, no more and no less. And when they got greedy and took more than what they needed, the manna spoiled. God wanted them as he wants us, as he wants me to depend completely on him for what I need each day. Look, what we know is that almost every modern economic system has found a way to exploit the poor and preserve the wealth of the rich and powerful. It's a fact of life. But the gospel alerts us individually and collectively 
to the fact that even as redeemed people, we still struggle with our fallen nature. We have spiritual blind spots and we deal with sin. We are not immune to being so self-protective and self-persevering, preserving, I'm sorry, self-preserving, that we hold on tight to what we have. He wants us to believe that he will give us more and to open our hands, to be generous with those who are in need. Christ laid aside his privilege and his security to come dwell among us and love us in our mess. It's all about trusting God for what he willingly and has already decided he's going to provide. Recognizing that he alone gives us enough to fill whatever space we need filled. We have to reject the lie that God isn't enough. And that we, and that we need to take it into our own hands and go out and provide for ourselves. Once we accept this and, and walk in this, I think we, we really will have begun to do biblical justice. After all, Jehovah Jireh. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The fourth petition, each of these is called a petition. The fourth petition is the Lord, in the Lord's Prayer leads us into confession and forgiveness. Different traditions say different words here, trespasses, debts, sin, but no matter what word you use, we are saying to God that we have done wrong and we need forgiveness. We also recognize that we have the capacity to forgive others. We must both receive and give forgiveness. Because we live in a moment of transition in between the inauguration of God's kingdom and the fullness of it, in the vineyard we call it, there you go, now in the not yet, we need to know that everyone will not treat us right. So we forgive. And as Jesus said, we forgive. Jesus said to Peter, we forgive 70 times, seven times if that's what it takes. It's a lot of forgiving. But the people who have been victimized and oppressed, for them, this is something that is hard to do. And I want y'all to hear me, church. I really want y'all to hear me here. Those who have experienced oppression in any way often feel like they have the right to avenge and exact justice on those who have stolen lands, lives, families, and resources. Esau was tricked out of his inheritance and may have felt that justified in exacting revenge on his brother. And in fact, his mother, Rebecca, was pretty certain that this is how this was gonna go down. And she sends Jacob off to live with her relatives. 
after many years, you know the story, Jacob decides he's going to return home. And when Esau approaches Jacob, surrounded by an army of 400 men, Jacob fears the worst. But Esau, the one who many commentators and theologians tend to ridicule, does something that is amazing. He runs to meet Jacob, embraces him, and falls on Jacob's neck. That's what my Bible says. And kisses him, proving that he has forgiven. He has forgiven Jacob for all of the evil that Jacob did to him. In the one act, he stops what could have become a cycle of violence and retribution between the two brothers' families. Instead, he paves the way for healing and reconciliation. But I want you to note something. Jacob did not demand that Esau forgive him. Esau forgave his brother by his own choice. And I suspect that took some soul searching and some, some wrestling with God. So remember that those who have oppressed and victimized others cannot demand forgiveness from those that they have victimized. They can't do that. The oppressor has no right. And the oppressed, we need to pray for. We want reconciliation. We do. And I think that when you can see, or at least try to understand, where the other is coming from, we will get closer to that reconciliation. And understanding that as much as you may want forgiveness, if you wrong someone, and I'm talking on a systemic level, if, if, if you're participating in systems that harm, you don't have the right to expect someone to forgive you if they do Praise God. But that's not going to come unless we pray, right? And we have to understand when there are generations of hurt and pain that we as the church need to do what the church is called to do. And that's love. Many of us know the story of the wicked servant found in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. My NIV Bible um, translate, uh, calls this the parable of the unmerciful servant. A servant owes his master 10,000 bags of gold. He is unable to pay it, and the master orders that he, his wife, and his children be sold to pay the debt. 
The servant begs for mercy, and the master grants mercy. In fact, the master clears the debt, forgives the debt. Servant's glad. He goes out, and he runs into someone who owes him a hundred silver coins. And he demands that that man pay him the hundred silver coins. The man begs for mercy. The servant does not grant mercy. Instead, he has the man thrown into jail until he can pay for it, pay the debt. Strange to me. I don't know how you're going to pay your debt from jail, but okay. Then the master, and this is what Jesus says, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be able to pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We are each meant to confess and own our sins and then to be generous in forgiving others. We were shown mercy when the burden of sin was lifted through the finished work of the cross. We were given by Jesus a blueprint of mercy and grace. And this is what separates us from the wicked servant. You cannot enjoy the blessings of God's mercy and then withhold it from your neighbors. That is wicked. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus never promised that following him would be without temptation. In fact, this petition suggests that we would definitely be tempted. And even he was tempted. <clears throat> then Jesus was led, <clears throat> excuse me, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> After fasting 40 days, my God, I hope y'all are praying. <clears throat> After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, 
the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Satan tried to gain a foothold in the growing ministry of Jesus. What is important to note is that Satan offered provision. He turned the, the, the stone to bread. Physical protection from harm. You will not strike your foot um, against a stone. And power. All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. These are not evil things in and of themselves, but when they replace our, the, our call to follow the Lord, they become evil. We are often lured by promises of power and, and fortune and fame. Again, not evil things in and of themselves. They cross the line from good to evil depending on how we get them and what we do with them. Satan tries to get us to believe that we can have instant access to, to these things and, and that we can do so by any means necessary, often causing us to oppress others in the pursuit of them. All too often we fall for the devil's schemes. But the good news is that we don't have to. Jesus is our model. And the same way that he was victorious over sin and temptation, we can be as well. We don't have to respond to Satan's lure to exploit others just so that we can get ours. Instead, we can resist his pull and he will flee. Charles, can you all come back up? If the reality of our current society is heartbreaking or overwhelming to you, then I want you to know you are on the right track. It breaks our father's heart too. Historically in our society, I'm sorry, historically in our society, sin has been committed against many groups and individuals based on race, age, gender, sexual orientation, and class. The good news is that, that God has a plan to right these evils, as well as an ultimate plan to destroy the demonic engineer of this darkness. That plan starts with Christ's work on the cross and continues through us. We have an invitation to join with God in his kingdom work with righteous anger against those sins of our individual and corporate past. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know 
that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray in such a way that we are reminded of the true nature of our Father's character, his kingdom, his provision, his forgiveness, and his direction and protection. I challenge us today to search our hearts and to measure our connection and love for God and to seek to grow our time in his presence, particularly during this season of Lent, so that we can show God's justice and righteousness to the unjust world. We cannot affect change in places that need change if we don't know God's love and his heart for justice. Are there places that we have through tradition or learned behavior fed into injustice, even through inaction or unwitting participation? Can we set our eyes on God's love and higher call, forgiving ourselves and being better connected, spirit-led people in our fallen world so that the world can see the love and justice of our Father. Amen. Thank you.